everyone, this is Andy. Welcome to the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation podcast. Our goal at the Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation is to support those diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, their families, and the ongoing search for a cure. Our goal in this podcast is to introduce you to some of the inspirational people in this journey, spread awareness about nephrotic syndrome, and help those in the trenches by connecting them to one another and allowing you to share in their experiences, even get tips and information. Please keep in mind, we are not doctors, and none of the information provided in this podcast or related sources should be looked at as medical advice or guidance of any sort. Consult your doctor before making any decisions that may affect your health or that of your child. That being said, we absolutely love this format, and we hope you do too. In today's episode, we introduce you to Dr. Ryan Lazarus. Ryan is a practicing functional medicine doctor recently moved his practice from Napa, California to Danville, where he lives with his wife and two kids. Ryan is also a licensed nutritionist and through his practice offers so much incredible information, practical guidance and support to those battling chronic illness, looking for optimal nutrition and performance, or trying to navigate life with an autoimmune disease. He is also our first guest who is not a nephrotic syndrome warrior. Yet, like most of us, he has faced significant trauma in his life and has had to overcome many of the same challenges. Ryan is a wealth of knowledge and we found every second of our time with him both enlightening and inspiring. We hope you do too. So on to the episode. Hey, Andy. Hey, Jeremy. And hi, everyone. Today, we are going to be meeting with Dr. Ryan Lazarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. Good yeah. to see you, Ryan. You too. Yeah, good to have you on today. Ryan, you and I have had the chance to connect a couple of times, but how did you and Andy get acquainted? We were introduced through a mutual friend, a mutual doctor, and I participated in one of her great fundraising events at a park and didn't know much about nephrotic syndrome at the time. But you know, during the six hours I was there, listened to some very, very inspiring stories of adults and children and, and Andy and her story and talking to other people and really bonded with a lot of people and it resonated with my own story that's a little unique as well. And so wanted to be, you know, a part of any future collaborations and any way that I could help with, you know, my expertise and my training. And so we've been doing multiple things since then. Yeah. You know, it's so funny, right? I forgot that we met so long ago, you know, we kind of live in the same community. So I just consider you among the people in our little close-knit family of community members, but it was quite a while ago. So I'm super excited to have you on today. And I'm so excited just that our paths have crossed a little more intentionally for anyone who's listening. Some of you probably met Ryan before because he and his daughter, Sienna, were the hosts of the gift of gratitude, finding health session in the fall, which was super successful and really special. And gosh, your daughter, Sienna is seriously amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah, we we're proud of her and, you know, surprised the things that we keep saying to her over and over and over are actually <laughs> sticking. So yeah, uh, that's got to feel good as a parent, right? <laughs> I guess the gift of gratitude is productive brainwashing, right? Yeah, <laughs> totally. That's what I think that's our job as parents really is productive brainwashing. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah, that's so cool. I didn't, I didn't know that you guys had done that. And so Ryan, have you lived in Danville your whole life or, or where did you grow up? So I grew up on the peninsula in Los Altos and lived there until um, I graduated high school and then went down to the central coast in San Luis Obispo and went to Cal Poly there and then came back up and then went to school up here in med school. And then I went down to San Diego and practiced a little bit, had some fun and, you know, hit the, the ocean as much as the office and, <laughs> and then moved to Napa where I started my practice. Uh, and that was 2005. Will you give us a little bit of an overview of what your practice is? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, my original designation was a chiropractor. So it would deal with spine and joints and musculoskeletal injuries and athletic injuries and rehab. But I'll get into my kind of personal story and how I've implemented that in my practice. But subsequent to that, uh, really want to understand everything I could about the body. And so there's this operating system that you might have heard of. That's an emerging paradigm in health. And it's called functional medicine. So spent three years becoming board certified in that. And that was quite a commitment. 
And then, you know, wanted to know everything about nutrition. So I got a master's degree in nutrition and then eventually became a clinical nutritionist. So now I have this kind of unique sphere of comprehensive, holistic services that include the body, really the mind, the soul, nutrition, lifestyle. And so that's what I do primarily now from a reactive side and a proactive side. Yeah. You know, you are our first guest who is not him or herself diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, but you are our first outside expert. So that's a milestone for us, but also <laughs> really, really exciting. I mean, every time I talk with you, I'm just so inspired about the journey that brought you to the place that you are. And I can't wait for us to get into that in a minute, but I'm also really excited because I get asked all the time for references for people who basically practice functional medicine. I get asked all the time for references for a clinical nutritionist. And it's really hard to find people in those fields who you can trust and refer people to. And I think that just having you share your story and some of your background and what your practice is all about today is not only a huge gift for all of those younger warriors and parents who are dealing with nephrotic syndrome themselves, but also for our greater community in the Danville area. So this is our first delving into bringing people information that they can use in so many ways. So thank you so much for being here. Just preparing for this podcast, I was inspired by the answers to your thoughts and your questions. So I'm really excited to get into that today. Yeah, it, it's been so exciting to get to read up on Ryan and just all the different things that he's done and all the different degrees and specialties that he has. And Ryan, can you tell us a little bit more about, like if you had to put into what functional medicine is in a paragraph, what do you think that would be? It's a great question. It's thrown out all the time now. I would say it's this. It is taking the science that is available in the last 25 years, which is exponential from the previous 25 years, and really applying it in what we call a systems biology, meaning that the whole body is interrelated. It's no longer that, you know, the nephron and the immune system and the neurology and the gut, it is all one and the same. And so we've taken this information and understand that it's all interrelated. And so we use a very, very specific protocol to try to uncover where the root issue is. That's it in a nutshell. It is um, very detail oriented and trying to find it. Now it's never one single thing. It's a lot of different things, but that is what I'm doing as an investigator, trying to figure out where the underlying problem and what is perpetrating this issue. And it's a little different than conventional medicine, which is a, a very reactive model. It's, you know, lining an ICD-10 code or a diagnosis code with a pill, right? It's a pill for every ill or what we call the name yeah. blame tame game. You name a problem, you blame it and you tame it with something. And there's a, there is absolutely a time and a place for that. I was saved by conventional medicine, literally my life. And I have to use it. I use insulin all the time. But when it comes to understanding how we manage many of the issues that present to doctors, instead of just matching it with a drug, we want to try to understand is there lifestyles or nutrition, is there something they're doing or not doing, and how do we isolate that? So it's really just getting to the cause of it. So that's longer than a paragraph. That was four paragraphs. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfect. And so it, I was actually, I was going to say, it sounds like you're a medical detective with the idea of incorporating the whole body and the mind and the soul, like you said earlier. And so what do you think led you to go on this search, this journey of trying to find all this information that you have tried to find? Well, it's my personal experience, and I think many of the listeners and participants in this podcast can also relate to this, which is, you know, physician heal thyself. You know, I had a very, very serious accident when I was 18 years old. I, I crushed multiple organs playing a sport and uh, had emergency surgery to cut me open and remove them, and they saved my life, and my path has been forever changed because of that, and as a result... You know, I had immune problems and I had digestive failure and still do occasionally. And I'm a type one diabetic. So I have to, you know, use insulin because they remove my pancreas and my spleen. And so I was on this path. I thought I had all figured out, you know, ready to go play soccer at Cal Poly and it changed like this. 
Mm. And so I went through Scripps Clinic in San Diego, La Jolla, and I went to UCSF and to Stanford and saw great, great, very smart doctors, just like probably many of the people listening to this, which is mm -hmm. we, we need answers. We don't understand this. And I couldn't really get the answer that I needed. It was just experimental. Try this and try that. Can you tell us a little bit more about the injury that happened, the accident, if you don't mind? No, of course. Okay. Yeah. So it was indoor soccer and I was running along the wall and it, the rink was very much like a hockey rink at that time. And they have plexiglass along the whole perimeter in the back now. And it was a netting on the side. And this was in San Jose at a place called off the wall. And I just got lifted up on top of the wall and rolled over. And it was just the wrong angle, literally the wrong millisecond in the universe and it crushed my pancreas and usually you would just rupture your spleen i mean a ruptured spleen is a fairly common injury from that mechanism yeah but for some reason it burst the spleen and then crushed the pancreas and so, so they had to remove wow. your spleen wow. and part of your pancreas is that right yes which and you can't live without a pancreas can you no, no. I have a little bit of a nub with a bunch of scar tissue. Wow. And so I spent what felt like my whole life, but it was probably a good 12 to 13 years. Very angry, very angry in and out of hospital, no answers, really smart doctors that cared, but just didn't know what to do. I mean, how, what do you tell somebody when their organs don't work? And so that's where I said, I'm, I'm going to figure this out myself. So just researching, investigating, and finally uh, started to understand a little bit about the body. Although the more I learn about the body, the less I understand, because it's an amazing, beautiful thing. And then just started diving and diving and saying, I wanted to learn more and more and more and now apply it, what I've learned in the body with all my patients. Yeah. And so you were on a path, you were going to play soccer at Cal Poly and as suddenly as anything can happen, that whole situation changed, your whole life changed. And so you talked about for a long time, you were really angry. What was it like when right after you had that surgery and you came out and they were kind of giving you that information, what was that initial reaction that you had? Denial. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, I'm sure, I don't want to assume, but I'm sure many people listening can understand this. It's just, it's a major pivot in your life right? You don't expect for these things to be diagnosed or to happen. And so it was denial and anger and yeah. victimization and why this happened to me and why am I the strange one and why do I have to do this? And I learned the hard way. I was hospitalized five different times in college and after for not really understanding mm -hmm. my condition. So, and then that's a whole other story, but did possible more damage to what very, very little spectrum of healing that I had. And so that's when I said, I'm going to absolutely change. And my whole life has changed since then. But the psychology of it, it took me many, many years. And now it is flipped. It is flipped 100% on the other side of the pendulum, which is pure acceptance. And there is a reason and it's not a cliche thing. And, and I know my mission in life now, and it's to explain and to help other people. So but, you know, there were dark days. There were dark days. It was the yin and the yang. There was a lot of shadows and a lot of dark. And that's what I want to suggest to anyone listening or really anyone is that there's an approach and a framework to understanding how we're all unique and, and then how we can look at this. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. And I relate to that in a number of ways. You know, when I was 14, I was also playing soccer and trying to make it to a pretty high level. And with my diagnosis, I went from playing soccer five, six days a week to all of a sudden I was steroid dependent and trying to find any treatment that I could. And then I was only playing soccer one or two days a week. And I was furious. I was furious for a very long time. And so I can absolutely relate to that. And so you talk about this process and a protocol to working towards acceptance. What made you want to start on that process? I was unhappy. I was you know, my net emotion was negative. I can't imagine that. I mean, I, I know that it is a journey because I have been through some of those dark days myself. So I hear you, but um, just talking with you and all the interactions we've had, it's amazing to think that you went through a period of 
negativity because you truly just exude positive and grateful. Well, you know, I, I, or, or, well, I am. I am now. It, and I know it's not easy. It sounds like I'm sitting here and, you know, twisting in this way. And, you know, what else are you going to say, right? When you're given, you know, this deck of cards and it's yeah. play the cards, right? It's not what you're dealt. It took uh, many, many, um, it took some time in, in solitude. It took some illnesses. It took some inspiring books. It took it took the whole spectrum of emotions to finally say, you know what, I'm young. I'm not going to do this anymore. I cannot change what happened to me, but I can change what's going on in here and what's going on in here. And so, you know, that's what I remind myself every single day, every single day. That's what I, I try to suggest to a lot of my patients and maybe a lot of individuals listening, because I think we're all on the same page on this process. Um, yeah, it was a long journey, but I have seen it happen very quick in people that I have coached and helped. And that's kind of what I want to get into too, you know, in this podcast is some suggestions, mm. easy things that people can do that they might not be doing that can, you know, change the frame of mind. In addition to, there is some information, there is some evidence-based information about what people can do for nephrotic syndrome that might not be discussed with their primary care. So, um, yeah. So it's so interesting because as I went through my journey after my first transplant, the entirety of the help that I got from, you know, I was, I was treated at Stanford and after my first transplant, they did a fantastic job. They did a great job with the transplant. When I was talking to a doctor afterwards, the main thing he told me about the psychology of it and my mentality and how that changed was he told me don't watch sad movies because sad movies are going to have an extra impact on you and that was really a lot of what I got and what came out of it and so I think as you talk about a 13-year journey and also seeing it it shorter I think I've been going through this for almost 15 years now and having a similar journey as well and so I think hearing about what you did in your journey that you would do that would have expedited that process I think would be really helpful, not just for me, but for a lot of our listeners. So if we were to start with the basics to get this journey going, what do you think some of those things would be? So um, acceptance. Okay. These are my organs. These are my kidneys. This is my pancreas and accept that we are beautifully unique. Mm -hmm. And this is no matter how silly it sounds, it's an opportunity and not a burden. And I can say that having been in the hospital and having woken up you know, in three in the morning, shoving sugar in my mouth and doing insulin. So I'm not naive. I, I know all the challenges. And I know that if somebody's listening, they say, how, how can you say that that is not a, it's not a burden and it's opportunity. It is literally flipping it and believing it. And the way you believe it is you start looking around and looking for all the, the great things that you do have, mm -hmm. because we get so hyper-focused on when things are going wrong. That's what I do. I wake up, I'm a diabetic. I have to do these things. I don't digest food correctly. I have to do these things until I flipped it and said, no, I, these are all the great things that I can do. And I just kind of switch this and say, I have to be a little strategic with these things. Then that, that really helped me. And then reminding myself, mm -hmm. having a framework that would remind myself and what I call it is, and writing a book on it right now, is a upgraded operating system in which I would remind myself with intentions and affirmations and visualizations and journaling and sitting with these emotions and listening to them and then resetting them and then continuing to affirm this path that I wanted to be on. So making a, a consistent lifestyle and having that framework has been what has been the key for me. So a lot of the things you're talking about outside of conventional medicine, which is a lot of changing your mindset around it. And, and I think for a long time, I looked at my illness and my battle with that illness as exactly that, a battle. Did you ever see it that way? Did you oh. ever see it as a battle? Absolutely. I would wake up and it's the first thing I think about. And it's the last thing I would think about before I go to bed. And it was, you know, I have my, it's called a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor buzzing at me all the time and checking my blood sugar and then, you know, not feeling good after eating. And then I won't go into all the digestive problems. I mean, it was all the time and it was literally a daily battle every day. And so 
my energy was flowing where my focus was. I mean, they say this, right? Your energy flows where your focus goes. I mean, it's, it was, no, these are other things I can think about. And, and so it happened by focusing on the other things and then wrapping my head around. These are the things that I can control. And then disassociating a negative emotion or an attachment to what I had to do to take care of myself. So it would be this like reflex anger when I would have to, you know, do this or check on my phone or, or take these digestive enzymes every time I would eat. I had these built-in software downloads of anger to this and like literally realizing that that was happening and I could reset those and just say, this is really not a big deal. It is 0.0001% of my day. I need to remove that emotional attachment. And so meditating on it and separating it myself from those habit after habit after habit. Finally, it was like, no, I mean, I'm not a diabetic. I mean, yes, I am, but I've removed the label from it. And that's, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of going to a whole nother rabbit hole on this, but you know, sometimes when you receive a diagnosis, that is now you. I have nephrotic syndrome. I am a diabetic. No, you're not. You're an amazing individual who has so many different beautiful things going on. You just have these minor little challenges. And so, I mean, that's the short of it, but, and it takes, it takes a while to do it. And it takes a consistent routine to be able to remind ourselves of this. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that that first year is so hard is because you're just experiencing everything through the lens of your own history and your own expectations of what you think, you know, your holidays should look like, or what you think your weekends should look like. And after you are diagnosed with nephrotic syndrome, that changes. And I'm sure it was the same for you when you went through your injury and you have to really reframe your expectation of what a good day is. You know, a good day before was not what a good day is now. A good day now is when I wake up or I hear Wilson wake up and I don't hear him cough. You know, if I hear him from his room where he's coughing in the night, I think, oh my gosh, he's probably going to wake up. He must have caught something. Mm -hmm. And so once you can reframe that, it becomes a different attitude. But I think that first year for a lot of people who have gone through this journey is so hard because you're stuck in the past of what you think you should be grateful for. You're absolutely right. It's expectations and, and attachments. And as soon as we can be mindful of those things yeah, and swap them, whether it's, you know, setting intention with emotion or the stoic philosophy, or there's so many different amazing books and approaches to this right now, which is just essentially removing our attachment with an expectation and how we thought it was going to be and seeing the beauty in a different path, not the wrong path, a different path, Mm -hmm. uh, that's when you truly believe it. And then when you believe it and you're reminding yourself of it, then all of a sudden it's not as big a deal. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And you've talked about books and some of the other avenues that you've used for your support. You know, are there other people helping you through this or who, who has helped you through this journey? Some holistic practitioners in the last... 15 years have given me insight about the medical and the emotional and the mental and the spiritual portion of it, doing some different healings in different realms. And so had some help facilitating a mind shift in a different headspace. So there was some practitioners that were very helpful. You know, recently my wife, she knows me so well and she'll find me go down a dark hole every once in a while and help me pull out of it. You know, obviously my parents, when I was young, But the reality is there was no one single person that just threw me the rope and helped me. And so it's a lot of, you know, little tiny leashes and ropes that made sense to me. And so I would say family and other colleagues. I think that's, you know, such an interesting point of uh, topic in the nephrotic syndrome community is you know, what is our support system like and how do we bounce off of that support system and, and what can we use? If, if you don't mind me asking, was therapy a part of your healing journey? Um, therapy, like sitting down and talking about the emotions and yeah, n- not formal therapy. No. Okay. Interesting. And so a lot of that emotional healing and acceptance came from holistic support. It did. Yes. It came from 
tired and sick and tired of feeling terrible, you know? And so there were a lot of people that helped me, but it really, it was in here. It was looking inward. Um, great, I mean, great diabetics. And we, and we still have a bond just like everyone, like in nephrotic syndrome, it's a very, very tight bond. It's a very tight sorority or fraternity of family of people that all get it when you're in the inner circle. You know, if I've worked with other diabetics and people that have digestive problems and those people have helped, but really to pull myself out, it was, it was on me. Okay. Yeah. And, and it sounds like you were highly driven to do that. And it, and it took you some time to get there, but, but once you became highly driven to do that, you found the answers that you, you needed to find. And so you've talked about a full body approach. And so how does something like nutrition tie into something like neurology? Great point. So many people look at nutrition as fuel, right? I eat this, it calms my hunger pains and I get energy. And the understanding of nutrition is absolutely baffling what we now know about it. We don't even, when I say we, as in, you know, our industry, it's fuel, it's information, it's medicine, it's bonding. There's so many different aspects of nutrition, but in regards to nutrition specific for a condition, food is information. It is literally zeros and ones and data. And you are putting in zeros and ones or data that your body recognizes, knows what to do, will break it down, assimilate it, and repair, recover your body. Or it's information it does not know. The immune system reacts to it. There's a level of inflammation and that inflammation can go chronic and can eventually perpetrate other issues in the body. The immune system is in the gut. The gut and the immune system is one and the same thing. It's 80 to 85% of our immune system is in our colon. And it's there to understand and interpret the outside world. So we're basically understanding our outside environment from really what is going into our mouths. And so understanding how the microbiota and all the bacteria, all the hundred trillion strains of bacteria that reside in each one of our guts and how it's influencing other organs and other systems is crucial. So the gut and the immune system, like I just said, one and the same, but the neurology, you know, they call the gut the second brain. It is reliant on your gut being healthy to be able for your brain to work and your central nervous and your autonomic um, system to work. And so this is what I say by systems biology. If the gut is impaired because you're putting in improper food or data or information it does not understand, and you're inducing an immune response causing inflammation, and there's a genetic predisposition to something mm -hmm. um, like autoimmunity or any of the spectrum of autoimmunity, you could be perpetrating this improper antibody production that then makes the condition worse or expresses different genes. So this is what we call nutrigenomics, which is how nutrition is affecting our genome. And so that's a long answer, but it's no longer, you know, carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, the macronutrients, it's micronutrients, it's phytonutrients. It's these 40,000 different small, amazing information structures that are in different nutrients. And then it's, you know, feeding the, the microbiome and, and this amazing beauty of interaction that we can nourish our body or perpetrate this immune inflammatory response. And it's very relevant to any autoimmune condition, especially nephrotic syndrome. So you can eat something like fast food and that causes inflammation within your body. And then that can trigger different responses genetically. Is that what you're saying? Or sorry, if I'm putting into layman's terms. 100%. Not philosophy, not opinion, shown, can back this up with study after study after study. What we put into our body, our genetic code is looking at and interpreting and making the appropriate response. This is the difference between our blueprint, our hardware, which we call our genotype, and the software that we're downloading all day long. And that software, like I said, it's information. We are consuming software. That software is going into our computer program, our hardware, and giving it either a virus or cleaning up the hard drive. And so what it's doing in a genetic level is saying, I have this genetic predisposition. This is causing leaky gut. This is causing inflammation. I'm going to turn on these genes and it starts to express that gene differently. So to answer your question, yes. 
Not only that, but how we move, how we sleep, you know, our belief systems, our thought processes, all of this is information. It's billions and billions of data going into our computer system and our computer systems processing this information and carrying out the right operating system or the wrong operating system. And so how can our habits influence our health? Yeah, well, our thoughts become our beliefs. Our belief becomes our actions. Our actions become our habits. Our habits becomes our rituals. Our rituals become our routine. Our routine becomes our lifestyle. And what we know about health and wellness is your lifestyle is more important than your genes. 100%. That is truth. That's called epigenetics, which means you're given your blueprint. It's how you live your life that gives the blueprint the right instruction manual or the wrong instruction manual. So to answer your questions, the habits basically make up, are, do you have a net productive lifestyle that is helping with health or a net negative? And that is everything we talked about, how you move and how you sleep, wow. stress levels and what you put in your body. Are you putting in the natural mass center? And so it is really, it really comes down to, again, you know, what goes on in here that we repeat all the time and we don't need to be perfect. There's a realistic and practical strategy with doing this, but to answer your question, absolutely every single thing that we do during the day, every 35,000 decisions we make daily, that's how many an average human being makes. If we're making, let's say 80% of the correct decisions, our body is going to reflect and show that. And that's repair and recovery and protecting a genetic vulnerability that we might have, be it autoimmunity, multiple sclerosis, nevotic syndrome, whatever it is. That's what we can control is all these decisions that we're making every day. So when Wilson was first diagnosed, he, he had about six relapses in the first seven months. And it was, this is about eight years ago. So, so much has changed in the world of functional medicine. I don't think functional medicine was really on anybody's radar screen eight years ago, not like it is today. And I remember asking Wilson's providers, I said, have you heard about anything? I've sort of read a little bit about a gluten-free diet might be helpful. I've read about some other things when it comes to this. Do you have any thoughts on that? And Really what they said to me eight years ago is very different from what they say now. They've changed so much over the course of eight years, which I love. I love seeing that progress. But they basically told me, one of our doctors said, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time with this stuff. There's no basis to prove that it makes any difference. And there's really nothing to it. The other one said, do it if it makes you feel good. And he kind of explained it to me in a way that I really understood why they would explain it like this. He said, we are medical doctors. We are trained to review a study and make a decision based on the results of that study. That's what we went through medical school for. We're scientists. That's how we were trained. And there's just no study that's been done on the input of food and the result of that. When he explained it to me like that, at least I understood where they're coming from. They're medical doctors. They've just been trained in a specific approach. We just aren't to a point yet where we have the data to support them making that decision. I've definitely seen them come around over the last eight years into a much more accepting approach. But eight years ago, I had to go out and find an integrative doctor to help us through this journey, because I knew in my heart, and and actually I was just about to explain this, but basically after Wilson had had his six relapses in seven months, I remember I was in Tahoe for the 4th of July, and I was just about to give him the third chemotherapy. He was taking a transplant medication. He was taking 60 milligrams of prednisone as a six-year-old. And I was just giving him his first dose of Celsept, which is a chemotherapy medication. And I remember thinking to myself, I know that they've told me that removing gluten and dairy isn't going to do anything, but why wouldn't I, why wouldn't I just try that as I'm giving him this pill that says, don't handle it with bare hands. This is an extremely dangerous pill. Why wouldn't I try that? I, I can't necessarily say that I've seen a direct correlation, but I am a firm believer that, you know, if you put medicine into your body, that's a one and a zero, right? That's a data point that's going into your body and having an outcome. And we all know that. And why would food be any different? If you put food into your body, I'm sure people have different approaches and opinions on this, but I, I really am encouraged in seeing the progress and just the general understanding of that. 
but it's been hard to find people like you and providers. I would like to ask you, like, what would you tell your clients? You know, how do you get them to that point where you can help them in their first steps of that journey? That's a hard place to be, to go from just trying to make it by, you're still in the phase of being angry. How do you get them to that next step? It's a great question and I'm excited to answer it. I just want to say one thing on the response to the challenge and frustration of bringing a, a holistic questions or approach to experts and specialists. I did the same thing. I had the same response. They are very, very smart doctors, Yeah, uh, but they follow a specific model. My advice is build a team. Yeah, yeah, Build yeah. Build a team of your prescribing physician, your ophologist, you know, your, your kidney experts, and then your holistic team, because I sent you guys an email with uh, about 25 different references of nutrition and nephrotic syndrome. And so there is evidence-based medicine. And yes, they are observational studies because no one's paying $30 million to fund one right. of these studies to show this right. because there's no really profit in doing that type of research. So I think that approach, this kind of team approach is really important. And another really quick, for me, when somebody pegs me and says, this is the way it's going to be, that's anger. That's what drives me every single day is just my personality is nobody's going to tell me how my life is going to be and how my body is going to be. And there's a lot of anger through a lot of endocrinologists that I went through, through elite institutions that said, this is the way it's going to be. And there's not much you can do about it. And so somebody that is open-minded and says, I know what I know, and this is what I should do, but I would be open to this as long as you're not doing anything that could, you know, that's contraindicated from my type of medicine. Right. Um, so I think this balance is very, very important. Before you get into that too, about the, you know, this next steps and how you advise your clients, but I totally agree with that approach. And I'm sure Jeremy, you have the same experience, but you just have to have a team. I feel very grateful because we asked our nephrologist if he had any recommendations for an integrative doctor. And he happened to have gone to medical school with a really amazing top-notch integrative doctor who's in Belmont, California. So we had to drive like an hour and a half from where we are to find her. But because he had recommended her, they had a better relationship, I think, more confidence in each other. So it was the basis of a more successful team because I do think you as the person who is either going through a challenging diagnosis or the caregiver for somebody... That's one of the jobs. It's one of the things that makes this so hard is you're managing a team of people to try to improve your child's health or your own health. So I just wanted to comment on that because I do believe, and I think no matter how you go in this path, but especially when it comes to functional medicine and integrative medicine, you know, it takes a little bit of everything, just how you alluded to that at the beginning, which is there is a place for a specific medication to treat some of these things, but you also can incorporate some other things that help overall. Absolutely. To answer your question, I always kind of use a three-tier system when I explain this. It does not matter if it's a symptom, a syndrome, a condition, a disease, a diagnosis. It is your lifestyle first. It is your nutrition and your diet, and then natural medicines that complement those two changes. By lifestyle, it's way easier said than done, but you know, your immune system, the, the whole goal with autoimmunity is try to remove the confusion of the immune system, try to support the immune system. And look at what we're talking about right now with immunity, um, yeah. with COVID and all of this. A lot of people's immune system are suppressed and compromised from improper lifestyle choices. Deep sleep is extremely important. It's the most restorative Mm. really it should be six to eight hours, but the three hours of deep sleep is the most restorative time frame in our 24 hour circadian window. And if that is compromised, it could be a trigger for a flare. The hard part with something that we're all dealing with, anyone listening that is challenged by nephrotic syndrome or mine is that, you know, I want to know what I'm doing that is causing this problem. And what is the trigger? What can I absolutely change? And it's hard because there's so many different things. 
So if I don't exactly know what the trigger is, I'm making sure that the sleep and the circadian rhythm is 100% in line. And that is basically the 24 hour window of wake and sleep. The, the, the understanding of this now is profound about how influential it is for a human with no condition or no challenge, making sure the sleep is good. Moving and, you know, I would say exercising uh, appropriate to the, each person is very, very important. We were designed to do this. And so, you know, just not being sedentary. And I, I know that all the challenges that arise with the ages and disabilities, but, you know, moving. If there's stress, realizing what stress does to our body, catecholamines and, you know, epinephrine and norepinephrine and adrenaline and glucocorticoids like DHEA and cortisol, that wreaks havoc on our body. That is challenging for every single organ. And so if there's excessive cortisol that is being produced from a chronic stressful situation, that makes it very, very challenging for the body to work correctly. So managing that. And then again, our belief systems, right? You know, what we're thinking and our opinions and, you know, our kind of our net emotional compass that we, we briefly talked about. I would say in terms of answering this question simply is looking at these lifestyle factors and saying, where am I vulnerable? Where, where, where can I do a simple modification or a change in any one of these lifestyle factors and start there? Changing one's lifestyle like this in full, I've never seen it before. It just, it does not happen. We are wired in certain ways. And so it takes a realistic, practical game plan of identifying where we might be vulnerable in our lifestyle and then building into nutrition. What can I remove from my diet and replace? And as a nutritionist, restricting foods is very, very hard. It, it, we have associations and addictions with food. To remove that altogether is very hard. Can we substitute that with something so there's a handful of different, what we call biohacks and strategies that are important for the psychology that we could substitute and move around based on our identified vulnerabilities. I love that. And yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I think it's the way to go about that. And everything we've talked about through this entire session, it sounds daunting and it sounds like quite a lot. And so it sounds like some of your advice is to start with some simple things for, for you. Start with some of the simple things. And with somebody who has just been recently diagnosed or who has a kid who was just recently diagnosed, let's say their lifestyle is a big influence on them and how that might influence a flare up or a relapse or something like that. What would be some of those simple things to just maybe not even change right away, but just, you know, to be aware of? Yeah. So first thing I'm thinking about is crap food, like food that is not food, junk food, inflammatory foods. Can we substitute those with healthier alternatives? That's easier said than done, but that is the number one thing that you can change, especially on a young individual. And there's so many great snacks that are healthy now and literally breaking that addiction and that association with unhealthy food. So Ryan, do you have a lot of clients or who are younger or parents of kids, do you have any advice? Like as a mom, you know, if I were to come to you and, and um, you know, I, well, I, first of all, just want to say, I totally agree with you that this is an important thing for people to remember that you have to start small. I still think back to that moment in Tahoe where we decided to eliminate gluten. It didn't happen overnight. It was a very slow, slow process and it's still not perfect for us. So I think that's an important direction to give to people, but honestly, seriously, I do want to ask the question <laughs> as a mom, do you have any advice? Like, how do you do that? If you literally are so used to just eating what's in the grocery store and if that's just built into the thread of your daily life, how do you get from that point to, uh, and I know you can't make it all at once, but what would your advice be to somebody in the trenches of that? So in my experience with my kids who are nine and 11 and dealing with parents and children that age and younger and teenagers, really everybody. Yeah. It's usually the meals are generally okay. Most of the time, if the family is making the meals and they have basic nutrition knowledge, it's never that it's really the snacky stuff for a lot of people or the time where they're rushed, they run home, they grab something or right. it's the morning they're going to school, you know? So finding out what window of the day where they're vulnerable and then doing a substitution there. So what we'll do is like for snacks, like I just heard them, they just came home and 
they know I'm in here and I can hear them rustling around. Uh, we've, you know, we don't have crap in the house. So we finally got rid of that, but we'll make like a chia pudding that they love it. And it's all it is, is just, you know, coconut milk and, and chocolate protein powder and chia seeds. And, you know, they'll just come home and they'll put it in a thing and they'll eat that. And then there's, we have these little green juices that they drink. And if they're thirsty, instead of any juices or any of the other stuff, they'll drink those things. They expect it. They know what to expect with it. We have healthy bars and we'll do some really great, like we use Belcampo. It's some really clean grass-fed, grass-finished beef jerky that we'll give them. So the snacking stuff, there's like a, a designated drawer with things that are healthy. Mm-hmm. And then we always have something for the grab and go, meaning when we're rushing to a practice or we wake up and they're trying to take off really quick, we'll have something in the refrigerator that they know that is, these are the safe things. Is it an apple? Is it a bar? Is it one of these, you know, fruit snacks? It's just building this expectation where they know what to expect there. And again, it doesn't happen overnight, but that's usually the easiest thing to do. And then, you know, having a balanced meal, would you agree? It's more of the the snacky stuff. Yeah. Oh my gosh, totally. I need to go back and do a much better job of this because I'm a mom of a 14 year old and a 12 year old. And through this pandemic, we've been home so much more and the snacking has gotten out of control. And I think that we're really healthy because we make really healthy meals, but I will tell you our pantry has gotten really downgraded a couple levels and the snacking has just gone crazy. Mm -hmm. We keep telling Wilson because, you know, we're vegan right now. We keep telling Wilson, well, just because you're don't eat meat doesn't mean what you're eating is healthy. So take a minute to think about what you're actually putting in your body. But one person did give me a tip and I actually need to do a better job of this, but it is very helpful. And it's very much like what you said, which is remember those transition periods. So this is when we were in school, but she would try to always prepare something for when the kids got home from school that was really healthy and looked pretty. So it would be some sliced strawberries or some washed and sliced carrots. She would have it out and ready. And I know that's so much easier said than done. And like I said, I have really let that slide lately, but I do think that was so valuable to have that there so that while they're hungry and they're looking for something to grab, the first thing that they grab is something healthy. And then they just are less likely to grab the junk. But yeah, it is a path. <laughs> 100%. If you set them up for success, it's that grab and go. It's, it's the yeah. prep. All, every single nutritionist or somebody that is advising optimal food choices, it's yeah. the forethought. And you don't need to spend two hours every four days planning and prepping and having this beautiful array. When you get into a routine, you're absolutely right. They come home, they know what to expect. Instead of just grabbing that's there. They eat that. And then actually they'll be satisfied. And so it's building that expectation and then just having that grab and go food there that has been there or planned for three or four days. That's such a good tangible suggestion. I'm going to do it. (laughs) It's so interesting to, to me because I was a 15 year old with unhealthy eating habits on prednisone. And oh so gosh, yeah. if you came to me when, when I was 15 and all of a sudden, instead of mac and cheese or, or whatever, you know, unhealthy thing or grab and go thing that, that we had, you were going to change that with fruits and, and carrots. I think as a 15 year old on prednisone, I would have lost my mind. So how do you make, I guess this is a question for both of you, because you get both do such a great job of this. How do you make something for your kids that they're excited about. And and especially for you, Andy, for Wilson, who's also on prednisone and experiencing the symptoms of that. Well, that's a great question. We're actually having kind of a hard time right now with so much time at home. Like Ryan said, there's just a lot more snacking going on, but I do think that when I can give myself about 10 minutes, there are transition periods. There is a four o'clock period or a five o'clock period when we start to make dinner And that's when the kids start to come out of their rooms and they're kind of hungry. And if I can just put out something like hummus and veggies, they actually love it. But the problem is created more so when we just go right into making dinner. And so then they come out of their rooms, which they've literally been in all day and they're hungry. And so even though dinner's not quite ready yet, they'll go to the pantry and they'll get out some trail mix. And sometimes it's a really healthy trail mix, but sometimes it's more, you know, lately we've found more 
of our trail mix has more and more candy in it. And so oh, just because it's called trail mix again, doesn't make it healthy. <laughs> there, there is this Trader Joe's trail mix. Oh yeah. man, it is, it is so good, but it is so bad for you. Oh, I, but, um, oh my gosh, I we it. have the same thing. So this is our guilty pleasure. I'm airing all of our dirty laundry here. I don't know how I ever let this come into our household. So Ryan, forgive me, but we have been purchasing this trail mix from Target and it's called Monster Mix. And I don't know how we started this because I'm sure that it's not completely vegan and it's not even dairy free. And it's got so much peanut butter chips and chocolate chips and M&Ms in it. And for whatever reason, that has become this go-to snack. People think that's full of protein and I'm having to rein this whole thing back in. So you have inspired me, Ryan. You really have. <laughs> uh, to comment on that. It happens fast. It absolutely totally. happens fast. You get something and then, I mean, there's so much more pleasure with food of when you're grabbing and snacking. I mean, I won't get into the psychology of eating, but not only is the texture amazing, right? And the taste, it's so easy to do this. It's, you know, and you blink and it's been two weeks and you're doing that. And all of a sudden you're establishing this new habit. Totally. Uh, so there's no judgment. And it's very normal. And, you know, the most important thing is you realize it. Yeah. What you do is for that type of habit is substitute it with something that provides that same type of snackiness. And usually you, you would just need to do a real trail mix, right? Like, you know, put whatever you normally eat. If nuts are safe, having those like raw walnuts or pumpkin seeds or you know, coconut flakes, and then a couple of little cocoa nibs in there, all of a sudden, they're not really going to be as reactive as that. It's very, very common. You know, another thing we do is we put the veggies out and we'll make them do that, right? But they know, you know, it's not that satisfying snack that kids want. Baking, you, you know, you can bake with some like three or four simple ingredients now that is minimal sugar that gives them kind of that feeling of a treat. So my Sienna does a lot of those and Natalia, my wife will make them. And it's really just like coconut flour or almond flour, or coconut oil. We'll use monk fruit, which is a great sweetener and you know, some eggs and something like that for a binder. And you can make tons of different things that are bite-sized that they can have. And it does not take long. It's just understanding the recipe, trying it out. The kids go, oh, well, this is really good. And then just getting in the routine of having it there with the vegetables Again, it's a slow process, but all of a sudden, two weeks, as fast as you've developed that trail mix habit, you can develop a great habit. Yeah, that's really and, good advice. And so I know a lot of people who are trying to improve their lifestyle. And, and I think you talked about, you know, there was a whole progression from beliefs to rituals to lifestyle. And, and obviously there were a lot of steps in between that. Now, when somebody has a situation where all of a sudden it's been two weeks and they've realized, oh, I had a burger this week or I had, you know, whatever and all this other stuff, how would you coach them to react to that kind of situation where, oh, oops, you know, I did have this situation where, oh, I didn't meditate for two weeks. Oh, I didn't journal for, for a week or I didn't do this. How would you coach them into that? So I use this protocol and I kind of mentioned this in the answers and I have people apply it all the time. And it was made famous 20 years ago with a book called The Morning Miracle and it's called The Savers protocol, S-A-V-E-R-S. -E and it centers me so I can sit in silence and understand what I'm doing. And, and it is essentially waking up and having silence, not getting on my phone, not getting on the TV, not getting on the laptop and just sitting and really tuning in on how my body feels. And that is not done in this culture. Yeah. There is so much noise. And I'm not naive. I know how hard it is. I mean, I know the addiction with this thing. I mean, yeah. it, it, you get on yeah, and with you, your cell phone. Yeah. And so really to answer your question, it sounds so stupidly simple, but for me, it's just sitting with myself and taking um, the time to evaluate the last day and the last couple of days. And how am I feeling emotion? How's my body feeling? It's been very helpful for my diabetes and my digestion. And have I slipped? Am I aware that I have been slipping. And so that realization is overlooked, but very important. And like I said, affirmations and intentions. Well, I know that this can happen very, very quick. So I'm just going to set an intention today that if I find myself doing this, I'm going to at least sit with it and understand what was going on. What was the reflex that would maybe make this decision? 
and, and then give myself some self-compassion and grace, not be so hard on myself, right? It's what's going on, being mindful about why am I moving on this path instead of this path that I want. And then just setting a goal, setting a simple goal, not a big monstrous goal, but okay, I, I realize I'm doing this. I'm going to change this one thing. And it's human psychology and nature that once you set a little goal and you are successful in that and you reflect on it, before you go to bed, whether it's gratitude or the wins that you have in that day, it's very empowering and naturally we'll want to add to it the next day. So my simple answer is remove the noise, sit with yourself and try to understand, you know, where did it go wrong? And can you make small little changes to get you back on the path? We're constantly navigating all these different paths all the time, productive habits and unproductive habits. You know, and then I meditate and I don't say that I say mindfulness and there's so many different words to say this now. And many people look at this as a very, very elitist thing. It is one of the most powerful things a human being could do is really just understanding that we are consciousness and all this information is coming in and we have different reflexes and emotions with all these different triggers all the time. And we can sit back and witness as an observer where our attachments are to these things. And if you're not having a practice that allows you to just sit back and kind of understand this from an observer standpoint, then we will move with these attachments, with these urges and these emotions. So that's, my, again, my long answer to it. Yeah. No, I think that's a great way to put that. And, and I think sitting with that, recognizing it, and like you've said it a couple different ways, self-compassion or without judgment, and just to observe it, I, I think is so powerful. And so I think that's a fantastic approach and a fantastic way to look at it. And for me, I meditate and I find it to be harder than it is. And taking that couple minutes out of your day every day, whether it be in the morning or at night or both, and taking that time, you know, I would like to meditate seven days a week and I probably do it two or three. But then sometimes I find myself, you know, oh, what am I doing? I forgot to do it today or I forgot to do it yesterday. And then I start getting down on myself. So I think that's so fascinating that when you are trying to change your lifestyle, to make those small steps and to do it with compassion and, and without judgment and taking that time to reflect, I think is fascinating. It's a powerful, powerful tool. The power of manifesting and visualization in our lives cannot be overstated. And when you're dealing with a condition to visualize literally yourself feeling great and literally visualizing how your kidney is working correctly and understanding, you know, how the glomerulus works. And, and this is called quantum healing. It's literally telling your cells that the kidney knows what to do and it can do it is powerful medicine. I thought this was the most fascinating thing. It was something I wanted to ask you. So I'm so glad you brought it up. Before my second transplant, I was looking at ways of, of how can I heal and have the best healing. And one of the things that I came up with at the time I thought was crazy was visualizing your body healing and, and how that can actually be extremely powerful and it does heal faster. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I believe that the health status that I'm in right now is my visualizations. It's the lifestyle choices. It's all the things I talked about, right? All these nutrition and, and overcoming these barriers but I visualized myself not being a diabetic, not having digestive failure, not being victim, not being my identity over and over and over again. And when you do that, your brain does not know the difference between the visualizations and reality. It is true. It's science. There is a great book by Bruce Lipton called The Biology of Belief. And if you've never read it or people have not read it, I highly recommend reading it. You will manifest what you believe. And yeah. you take a very, very clear intention about the person that you want to be in a health that you want to have. And you add a real emotion to it, like a, a joy and fulfillment. And not just, you know, these are adjectives, but I mean, like really attach an emotion to it of how it feels. And you broadcast that into the universe daily, multiple times a day and see yourself doing this you will manifest it. That's the way the universe works. It's an energy thing. It's a quantum thing. It can be a religious thing. It transcends all of mankind and human beings experience. And I know it sounds, if you never heard this, it might sound a, a bit 
out there, but it is 100% true. Whether you're doing it on a macro scale about how you want to be and how you want to live, or you're doing it on a micro scale, watching your body actually heal itself and the cells regenerate. I, I think that is so fascinating and so interesting because Andy, I know you talked about where integrative medicine started eight years ago. And for me, that was in 2007 when I started going through that. And so I would hear things like this and then I would hear them be countered and hear, you know, oh, that's something you can do if you want to do it. But, you know, we don't really, really know how that's going to work or how that's going to play out. And I think this really talks on something that you were talking about earlier, Ryan, which is having a full team around you of, of having that natural medicine, but also having other professionals and other people around you who can support your health and your nutrition and all the different aspects and how much it all plays into everything. And so let's say we're taking somebody who is freshly diagnosed and they come into your office and they're saying, Hey, I could use some help. How would you work with their medical doctors and how would you integrate your medicine with all the other medicine that they're having to experience? Yeah. First is education. You never assume that their primary care, their specialist knows exactly what I'm doing. And so they pride themselves in evidence-based, you know, this is what the research and literature says that we do for this person when they present with these lab values and these symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a very linear model and they have to practice that way because that's the way they're trained. That's the standard of care for them. So if they were to say, you know, take a probiotic at 90 billion CFUs and the, the patient had a problem, they're held liable. I mean, I, I won't get into it, but that's how it works with malpractice and insurance. We know how the model works, right? So there is a little bit of fear of what they can say and what they can't say. And so what I would do is communicate with them and say, here's what I know of the patient. We're going to co-manage them. I'm not going to change anything on your recommendations. I'm going to focus on the things that we can influence, which is their lifestyle choices and their nutrition. And here's some natural medicines. And as a clinical nutritionist, I have a database that I'm taking all their medications in and I'm plugging in all the things that I'm giving with making sure there's no interactions, no depletions, that I'm doing my due diligence and being medically responsible that we can co-manage this together. So I would say it's having that functional integrative practitioner communicate effectively to the other doctor and let them know we're on the same team, which is helping this individual. We're not competing. I think once that doctor, regardless of their philosophy or understanding about what I'm doing, knows that we're building this circle and what I'm going to do is what we call grass, generally regarded as safe, then they say, okay, great. And once we pitch it that way, I don't know many doctors that say, no, I don't want to be part of this team. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And, and it makes so much sense to focus on everything, focus on the full aspect. And it's something that I wish I had more of because you know we were first diagnosed my family and I when I was diagnosed it was so focused on the medical care that there were some things that now I'm working on my mental health I'm working on kind of creating the lifestyle that I want to create and so I think having that as a patient and having that focus one I'm pretty sure I would have felt a whole lot better than I did but two going forward and growing up and going from being a teenager to an adult and taking some of those habits that we saw as survivalists and they continued onwards whereas if it sounds like if we would have integrated working with functional medicine it would have made a, a big difference it would have made a big change and it can right now. It's never too late, right? Never too late. I mean, I just, I wanted to emphasize that too, that we actually didn't get to our integrative doctor until maybe 18 months into our journey. And that was because I was trying to just keep us afloat. I knew that it was something I should do. I knew that it was something I wanted to do, but it was hard for me to find one, even though I finally got one through my nephrologist and she was amazing, is amazing. It was hard to find somebody. And I also was really nervous about bringing another doctor in because Wilson had been seeing so many doctors and the last thing in the world he wanted to do was to go to another doctor. Yeah. And so I, I do think when you mention it's never too late, Ryan, I think that's really important. I just encourage parents who are going through this at whatever stage you're at, it's never too late. And just to give yourself grace in every single moment that if you you know, can't embrace all of these things, even just a slight change. I mean, when you talked about sleep, Ryan, to me, that felt like a really safe place to start. When you talked about the power of sleep, I, I forget about that sometimes, but I know every parent of a child with nephrotic syndrome understands how important that is. 
I noticed a significant change in Wilson from before he was diagnosed. We used to be able to go out. I mean, he was only six when he was diagnosed, but we used to be able to go out and stay up late on weekends. And we just didn't really have to worry too much. I don't know if it was all the medications that he's been on or just the stress that his system is under with this disease, but very closely related to his onset of nephrotic syndrome was the fact that we just as a family could no longer do those things. We couldn't just ignore bedtime and go and go. We couldn't wake up at five and go skiing and come back. You know, we had to go up, ski, stay the night, come back and really account for that. And so I really wanted to touch on that because when you mentioned sleep, I feel like that's a really tangible and accessible place to start for people who might be in a really hard place that maybe just focusing on improving a couple hours of sleep could be the start of something much bigger. That's why I bring it up. I I could go on and on about how important it is. We all know the blue light before bed for adults and for kids is terrible. That I, I won't go into it, but you want to remove that at least 90 minutes before. And again, that rhythm, this biological rhythm is super important. We know that it is a trigger for almost any autoimmune condition as a trigger or a flare is when it gets disrupted and the mm-hmm. hypothalamus of the brain starts to change, which is the homeostatic part, which means our fluids and our hormones So when I say sleep, not being able to dive into it and to talk about the physiology, I'm glad you brought that up. It is a really easy thing. Plus it is a a perfect transition of when you go to bed with your sleep ritual, you know, set yourself up for success the next day. It really starts when you decide to go to bed the night before of how you win the day, the following day. Right. And, And so there's a lot of different strategies and I can review them with people or maybe at a different time about how you can optimize that. I know, right. I want to have you back and I want to do a finding health session with you. There is so much in here. And I feel like there's so much tangible information that we could really offer to this community in terms of just like things like that. Yeah, I I love it. As you can see, I'm very passionate (laughs) and I would love to join you again and share what I've learned on myself and, you know, my barriers and my challenges and help anyone I can. Yeah. And before we let you go, I just had one more question, which was if you had to give one piece of advice, one final big major piece of advice for somebody who has nephrotic syndrome and is working with it and trying to accept it and and move forward with it, what do you think that main piece would be? It would be get better every day. One small Mm. thing that you could do a day and then reflect on it and have self-compassion about it and don't judge yourself. We get down on ourselves. And once we go down that deep rabbit hole, it can be unproductive. And so just try to focus on one small win or large win a day. And this is for everybody, but if, if there is a blueprint or a plan that is given to you, maybe you learn from this podcast or you sit down with somebody and you just focus on doing that one thing. It will snowball and it will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Doing all this at once is very, very hard. And don't put that much pressure on yourself. I love it. I know that's just so relevant and helpful. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much for for joining us. I'm sure we're going to be hearing more from you, hopefully in a finding health session and hopefully maybe having you back on the podcast sometime. Thank you so much, Ryan. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. We'll talk soon. We hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find Ryan and learn more about his practice at LazarusWellness.com or by checking out our show notes. We hope to have him back for more. Next up, Andy and I share more patient experiences and talk with one of the nation's leading pediatric nephrologists. We hope you tune in for all of it. As always, reach out to us with any feedback or suggestions. You can find us on Instagram at Nephrotic Syndrome Foundation online at our website www.nephroticsyndromefoundation.org and be sure to subscribe for more podcast episodes and inspiring stories see y'all soon